Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. What a beautiful day. This morning, I'm going to be preaching another sermon in the series that's entitled The Kingdom of God. And if you're newer to city or you haven't been here in a while, we are going to spend an entire year looking at what is the kingdom of God and as importantly, how do we live as followers of Jesus in the kingdom. This morning in this message, I'm going to do a little bit of reminding because there's actually a great preaching book that is simply entitled this way, Preaching is Reminding. At times we need to be reminded of things as we follow Jesus. The first thing I wanted to make mention of is, is that City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church. Biblically-based means we take the scriptures seriously. We believe that if you understand the biblical story, that it has a way through the power of the spirit of transforming our hearts and lives. We are biblically based. Next, we are relationally driven. If you do a cursory reading of the Bible, you'll find out very quickly that relationship is the most important thing in life. Jesus said it this way, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, relationship, and love your neighbor as yourself, relationship. Relationship is the most important thing in life. And then last but not least, we are a spirit-led church, meaning that we believe the Bible teaches and we've experienced that God has sent his spirit into the world so that we can live out the scripture as we learn it, and we have the power of the spirit to live in the relationships that God calls us into. Now, my task, my assigned task in this sermon this morning is to explain or preach or teach on the kingdom of God, beginning in the book of Genesis with Abraham and ending up in the book of Romans as the Apostle Paul brings to us this incredible, deep theological letter that he wrote to the church in Rome. So again, my task is to begin with Abraham, the very first Jew, and then end up in the book of Romans as Paul reaches back into the Older Testament and looks at the life of Abraham and brings this incredible message of God's grace, love, and mercy in Jesus through the kingdom of God. Now, I say this far too often, but it's true. Context matters hugely. And this morning, context matters because you will have noticed some of us are wearing team jerseys. How many of you actually read the church email and know that this morning is a t-shirt or a jersey? No, see, anyway. <laughs> but the reason why we do this is what is today? Today is what? It is Super Bowl Sunday. And so we encourage people to wear whatever jersey you want. Doesn't really even have to be specifically for a team. But it's kind of Jersey Sunday. And so one of the things that you would note is is that there are sports in the Bible. As I've mentioned, wrestling is in the Bible. 
Now, Barb Sauer, who is married to the crew coach at UVA, Kevin Sauer's the head coach at UVA of the rowing or crew team, she uh, rebuked me and said that rowing appears one more time in the scripture than wrestling does. And so a shout out to the UVA rowing team. They are slightly more righteous than the wrestling team. Now what's interesting to note though is Paul in the scripture, by the way, speaking of sports and uniforms, Paul never actually names the Olympics, but he references them. And so since the Olympics are on right now, I thought it would be interesting to get a couple of facts about the Olympics because they were well known in biblical times, especially at the time the Apostle Paul. One biblical historian wrote the following, Paul maybe never went to the Olympic Games in ancient Greece held at Olympia. However, he did go to Corinth, the site of the very popular Isthmian Games, which were held on every year between the years when the Olympic Games were held. The games included boxing, wrestling. Again, I don't see any rowing in here, Barb, but I'm going to keep going. Uh, chariot races, foot races, javelin, discus, long jump, and also music and poetry were part of the Olympics. Thinks, makes you think about halftime at the NFL game, doesn't it? Reading on it said, this historian, biblical historian wrote, even Nero was a contestant at one of the Isthmian games in singing of all things. It is said that he badgered, bribed, and bullied his competitors into submission, forbade anyone to leave his hours-long performance, and then bribed the crooked judges into awarding him the crown or the wreath with the promise of Roman citizenship and money. Interesting. By the way, I guess you could get disqualified from the Olympics back then as well, unless you're Nero. Interesting to note, here's a few fun facts. The Olympics began in 776 BC. It began with a foot race and then spanned over 1,200 years to the point where the Olympic events were, the, were recorded by historians, po poets, and various other realities because the Olympic events had become really the center of the Greek world. Those who won were thought to be favorites of Zeus, the chief god of the Greek pantheon. It was interesting to also note, as I did a little bit of research, that there's a 5th century BC inscription that recounts Athenian citizens who won the games. They got a free meal every day for the rest of their lives in the Prytaneion, which is the town hall, along with other civic honors. So can you imagine you win and you get a free meal every single day for the rest of your life? Others had the award of no longer having to pay taxes. My question is, which one of those awards would you choose? <laughs> taxes or food for the rest of your life? My assumption is it was Italian food. I would take the food. <laughs> as far as it goes, is that spectators at Olympia stood while watching the games. The Greek word stadion, in fact, may have originally meant the standing place only later coming to mean the length of the stadium and for us, the stadium itself. Now, when you look up UVA athletes that are in the Winter Olympics, I could only find one. His name is Hakim Abdul-Sabur, and he's going to the Olympics for the second time. 
He actually was a former football player at the University of Virginia's college at Wise, Virginia. He was one of the eight men selected to represent the United States in the eight-man bobsled in, in Beijing, China, and he also was a part of the Olympic team, the Winter Olympics, in South Korea. Interestingly enough, he had never done bobsled, but the bobsled coach saw a video of him leaping up. He has a 40-something-inch vertical jump. And when the bobsled coach saw his athleticism, he called him, and the guy eventually switched sports and has been in two Olympics. Now, I can't even describe how huge the Olympics were when I was a kid. It was huge. In fact, anyone who played a sport when I was young, you wanted to play in the Olympics. My wife, who was a gymnast, wanted to be in the Olympics as a gymnast. I played ice hockey. As a matter of fact, I was so good that the team I played on won the Wisconsin State Squirt B championships. Notice Squirt B. Our team won the, the state championships, and I wanted to play in the Olympics so badly. Every kid did, until one time I took a slap shot in the solar plexus from a, a player by the name of Skeeter Moore. He was the best ice hockey player in the state of Wisconsin, and he picked me off and hit me right here with a slap shot. And when that thing hit me and all the air went out of my lungs, I determined God no longer wanted me to be in the Olympics, and I took up cross country, which means you run from a fight, you don't go at a fight. You know, what's interesting, though. Today is Super Bowl Sunday, and it's 6.30 p.m., one-third of America will clue in. That's what they're expecting. One-third of America. Now, as I said before, context matters, and it matters biblically, too. Can you imagine if you met Abraham and you were explaining to him what would happen this evening at 6.30 in the Super Bowl? Now, here's the explanation. Here's Abraham, has no context whatsoever, and you say, Abraham, it's 6.30, he wouldn't know what that meant, um, near sundown, there's going to be a game between the Bengals and the Rams. He'd say, what's a Bengal? And you'd say, it's a tiger from Asia. He knows what a ram is, and he probably knew what a tiger was. And so he would say, I'm going to bet on the tigers, because... And then you'd say, well, he'd say, well, what happened? He'd say, well, the Bengals and the Rams, 11 of each, get in the stadium, and then they fight. And he would say, well, the Bengals are going to slaughter the Rams. Like a tiger always beats a ram every single time. And then you go, no, 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 it's not really what I meant. What I meant to say was this. I meant to say that the Bengals are actually men, and the Rams are actually men. And then he would say, well, what does that mean? And you say, forget it, just watch the game. Just watch the game. Now, the reality of it is context matters huge. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a brief journey in the understanding of the kingdom of God as it stretches all the way back from Abraham in the Older Testament and moves into the newer. What I want to do is begin in the Older Testament. Last week, Pastor Keith preached an excellent sermon about the work of the Spirit and God bringing order out of chaos from the book of Genesis 
to the book of Revelation. Now, in order to understand where we need to begin this morning, we need to begin with the Older Testament. For the Jew, they call the Older Testament the Tanakh. And here's how they break it down. There's Torah, which literally means instruction. There's the Nevi'im, or the Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and the Ketavim, which means writings, which would involve Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Esther, other books. So if you were ever to run into a Jew, especially back in the Older Testament times, they would call the entire Older Testament the Tanakh. It was broken down into three separate scrolls. Those scrolls live in harmony together. But you are going to notice during this sermon that Jesus understood those three separate scrolls. He references them even in his own conversations and his teachings. But in order to understand the kingdom of God from Abraham to the church in Rome, a 1,700-year span, what we're going to do is we're going to read in the book of Romans... We're going to be reminded of a few things, and then we're going to understand what Paul is trying to teach us. We're going to begin our reading in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Here's what Paul says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it it is written, the righteous will live by faith. By the way, that quotation is taken from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. So the question becomes, and we need to be reminded, what is the gospel? The gospel is the Greek word euangelion. It's translated in English in your Bible four times as good news and 73 times as gospel. We need to be reminded again that the gospel or the good news is the announcement of kings about good news that will change the world. So whenever you read the word gospel or you see the words good news in the scripture, You must understand that that's the euangelion. It's announcement of kings of an event that will change the world. Here's how Jesus viewed the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come, he said, meaning Jesus. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the euangelion. Believe the gospel. Believe the good news. What was the gospel to Jesus? The gospel to Jesus was that the kingdom of God is now here in him. That's the gospel. The gospel is the announcement that the kingdom of God is now here in this world and that it will change everything. Now, as we look at our text, we notice that in the book of Romans, what Paul said was this that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. What is a Gentile? A Gentile is a non-Jew. Everyone who's not Jewish is a Gentile. The vast majority of us sitting here are Gentiles. 
Paul announces that the gospel, the euangelion, the good news, is first for the Jew. In order to us to understand a huge part of the Newer Testament, we have to understand what Paul is referencing. And I want to make sure that we understand what he's saying. First of all, in order to talk about the Jew, you must talk about Abraham, who's found all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, what ends up happening is, is that God, out of his own sovereign grace, approaches one guy and says to this guy, listen, if you will trust me and you will follow me, then I will be your God and your people, your descendants, will be my people. And what the text teaches us in the book of Genesis is that Abraham responds. He says, let's do this. And God repeats the promise to Abraham repeatedly. And the promise goes something like this. Abraham, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the sands on the seashore or the stars in the heaven. And I will be their God and they will be my people and we will be in relationship personally with each other. You will be a people for me. I will be your God and you will be my people. And so Abraham trusts. And the latter chunk of the book of Genesis or the middle chunk of the book of Genesis is about Abraham trusting God and following God and stepping with God and entering this personal relationship with him. Now, what we discover is that in the midst of that personal relationship, God approaches Abraham, and the sign of that covenant is circumcision or the cutting of the flesh. So at the outset or somewhere in stride near the beginning of that relationship, God comes to Abraham and says, the cutting of the flesh will be the sign that you are mine and I am yours. Well, now we have to leap to the book of Romans where we're reading from. What's the context in the book of Romans? Well, there was this church in Rome that started right after Pentecost happened. What ends up happening about probably 15 years into the life of that church, in AD 51, Emperor Claudius made a decree that every Jew had to leave Rome. So you've had this church that was pastored and led by Jewish people who were followers of Jesus. Claudius says, you've got to leave, and they do. And what's left is a group of Gentiles that were part of that church. Six or seven years later, that decree is lifted, and the Jews return. And when they turn, return to this church in Rome, they discover the church doesn't look like the church that they had left. The Gentiles, the church has grown, and they're looking at it, and they're struggling. Listen, changes in churches are really hard. I know that. In fact, Jesus taught a parable about new wine into old wineskins and the struggle with change and how the old is better. It's a difficult thing. But what we discover is these Jews return, and they really, really struggle with what they're experiencing. And so what ends up happening is Paul is writing them a letter. And in that letter, he is telling them about what God desires to do in the kingdom of God with both Jew and Gentile. 
Notice again what Paul writes to this church in Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then the Gentile. For in the gospel of righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, what we find is, you've got these Jewish people that have pastored this church. They leave, and then they return. And when they return, they're really struggling. And the reason why they're struggling is that the Gentiles are not obeying the laws of Moses. As a matter of fact, almost every letter Paul writes, this is the struggle in the letter. You have Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. The Jews believe you have to observe the law of Moses, and the Gentiles are not observing the law, nor are they observing circumcision, and there's a huge problem in the church. Now, what we begin to realize is that the Apostle Paul is dealing with that problem, and it affects us as well. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, the text teaches that righteousness comes through faith. And in verse 21, the apostle Paul writes, but now apart from the law, which are the 613 laws that the Jews live by, by the end of the Torah, there are 613 laws that the Jews are living by in order to be righteous before God. But Paul writes to the church in Rome, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets, that's the Torah and the Nephaim, according to the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You see, by the time of Paul and the church in Rome, living by the letter of the law is what made you righteous. Paul shows up and says, that's not how this works. The law is important, Paul says, but it won't make you righteous. Now, a lot of us believe that when Jesus came, he obliterated the law and that the law no longer stands. But I want us to listen carefully about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Here's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice what Jesus said. He did not come to abolish the law. The word abolish 
and fulfill are defined the following ways. Abolish means to deprive of success, to bring to naught, to deprive of force, annul, abrogate, or discard. To fulfill means this, to carry into effect, to bring to realization, to realize, to perform, to execute. And so ultimately what Jesus is saying is if you want to know what it looks like to fulfill the law, look at me. I want to be clear. Jesus never broke one of the laws of Moses, ever. He fulfilled them all. He lived them completely. Now we pick up our final reading in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. The Apostle Paul now begins to teach in depth about what will deeply apply to our lives. Here's what he writes. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. I want us to pause and think quickly about what Paul is saying. When it comes to the kingdom of God, Paul is explaining in detail what is important for us to know about our covenant relationship with God through the good news. And it's this. Paul announces that in Abraham, And looking at Abraham, Abraham was declared righteous before he did any works. Paul's argument in the book of Romans is this, is that God credited to Abraham righteousness because he trusted and he believed. Now listen, why is this so important to us in the kingdom of God? Here's why. For a lot of us, we have a works-oriented Christianity. We believe we're right with God when we get every work right. We believe to the depths of our soul that if I do everything exactly right, then God's pleased with me and he loves me. And if I don't get the works right, then I'm not right with God. And listen, works-oriented faith has been around since the time of Abraham. But Paul's argument is very succinct and it's clear. Because as we read on, we discover that Paul has a clear line of reasoning and I want us to own it in the kingdom of God. He goes on to say the following. Picking up again where we left off in our reading. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Reading on. 
Is this blessedness only for the circumcised? In other words, for the Jew? Or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstance was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received, a circumc- he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of all the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul's argument is simple, that righteousness was announced over Abraham before he had any work done. Anything done, the apostle Paul announces that Abraham was considered right with God because Abraham understood something, and I pray we do too in the kingdom of God. It's not by works, it's by trusting. It's not by works and always getting it right. It's by believing and having faith. As a matter of fact, Paul seems to announce that if you like work wages, you're in trouble. Because Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, if our faith is based on works, we're in trouble because works brings wages and the wages of sin is death. But the righteousness that God desires are people that trust in Jesus, that put their faith and their hope and their trust in him. It's not a work. And Paul's argument here is this, is that if you will trust, you receive the gift of justification, the gift of salvation. God desires to bless us with that. The same way he announced Abraham as having been righteous because he believed before he did any works. As we close out our time, I'm going to ask that you would stand with me. And as we stand together into God's presence, I want us to think about three things as we put feet to our faith. Number one, always remember Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. Number two, doing works to be right with God ends in defeat or pride. Number three, We are justified freely by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is the gift of God. So as we close our eyes just for a moment in God's presence, I really don't know where you're at with faith. But if you're a follower of Jesus and your following is about works, It's about always getting it right. I want to encourage you to lay that down 
and to believe again that salvation is a gift. It's a gift that we receive because we believe in the gospel of Jesus that the kingdom of God is here in him. If you've never taken the opportunity to say yes to Jesus, whether you're online or you're worshiping with us here in this sanctuary, I want you to take a moment and know the amazing gospel, world-changing news that the salvation that God offers in Jesus, it's a gift. You don't work for it. You can't earn it. You believe it and you receive it. If you've never done that, I encourage you to do that in this moment. That you would take this opportunity to say yes to becoming a follower of Jesus. You see, the kingdom of God touched Abraham and it's completely fulfilled in Christ. Will you in this moment trust him, put your faith in him, and when you do, it will be credited to you as righteousness.